Well, it is my very great pleasure to open up the Word of God with you this morning. I've been waiting all week to do that um, and to share with you some uh, of my thoughts on the passage before us. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we're looking at verses 10 to 15 this morning. Verses 10 to 15 of Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So you can find your way there. And as you do, I would like to uh, pose a few questions just to uh, set our minds going in the right direction. And that is, um, what would you commend during holidays? Thanksgiving's coming up and Christmas and those kinds of things. Perhaps you would say, well, shop early to avoid the rush. Maybe best to do it online. Or how about trips? You might say go through an agency if you're not good at planning. It's worth the extra money. Uh, And when it comes to saving money, well, invest. And when it comes to investing, diversify. What about a philosophy of life? What would you recommend or commend there? What kind of life is commendable? And I'll cut right to the chase and say that uh, that only the Christian life is a commendable life. And why, if you're a Christian, you want to convince people to follow Christ, for sure. But doesn't the world hate Christians? And didn't Jesus say that persecution is a foregone conclusion for his followers? And didn't he call them to follow him even if their lives were at stake? And weren't Christians always persecuted, even martyred throughout history? Well, yes, all that is true. Now, it's unlikely, of course, that unbelievers would ever make those connections, but we wouldn't want to hide any of that. Oh, no, lots of Christians and churches make that mistake, thinking that no one will come to Christ if they know that struggling and hardship is involved, or that being a Christian could lessen the quality of life from the world's point of view. But that's exactly what we need to bring up because a life that is triumphant in that stuff, much of which plagues everyone to varying degrees anyway, we know that life is cruel under the sun, it's what makes life worth living. It makes that kind of life commendable. Now, it's incumbent upon us then to live that kind of victorious life and not make ourselves out to be frauds. I know it's easier said than done and more difficult as the world gets more insane. But good news, the sage takes, takes some time here in this particular passage to tell, us, to tell us of two other important scriptural truths that will help us to fulfill our responsibility. I might put the principle this way. In those insane seasons of life when churches honor hypocrites and justice systems incentivize evil, true worshipers trust that God will justly recompense the wicked and reward those who fear him and will even in extreme times when government praises the wicked and punishes the righteous commend God's gift of a joyful life. That's what we will do. What a principle this is. Let's get into it. First thing we we notice in this in this great principle is that there are seasons of life when churches honor hypocrites and justice systems incentivize evil. That's in verses 11, uh, 10 to 11. Let's be honest, we live in an insane world. 
And that's the sage's position, and, and he's given ample evidence of this in his life experiences. But something tells me that you and I really don't need much convincing, do we? I don't think so. We only need to open our eyes and see the insanity all around us. It's painfully obvious in the context of public schools, in public life, in corporate America, Just about every aspect of life has morphed into something quite bizarre and really unrecognizable. How often do you find yourself on a weekly basis, if not a daily basis, saying to yourself, well, that just doesn't make sense. Why would people do such things? Why would they think such things? Well, hey, we live in a time when people believe that they can change their genders, invent their own pronouns, and identify as animals and inanimate objects if they want. The world is spinning more out of control as time goes on. Now, there's something else that might seem less extreme to you, but I would argue that it's even more dangerous, more hazardous to a society than anything else. And it's this. It's the growing, thriving apostate church. And this is what the sage turns our attention to in this context of injustices. Unlike anything under the sun, counterfeit Christianity can damn one's soul. Nothing else can do that. Notice in verse 10 that it's been his experience to see churches honor hypocrites. Churches honor hypocrites. He says, so then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the holy place, and they are praised in the city where they did such things. Uh, Now, just real quick, I need to digress for a moment. Your version may very well say, and they were soon forgotten in the city, which most versions have. I, uh, I follow the Christian Standard Bible at this point, which is really the only version I could find that says they are praised. It's a translation that is supported by the Septuagint, and it's also supported by the Vulgate. Um, it's hard to really go into all the reasons why, but there are two Hebrew words, one that means to forget and one means to praise. Uh, they both have three consonants. And the beginning and the ending consonant are the same. The one in the middle is different. But the one in the middle in each looks so much alike that it's easy to mistake one for the other. And I believe, then, that the better reading is to praise because the context just calls for it. They are there. They're honored. They're giving an honorable burial. And they're praised in the city where, where they commit grievous hypocrisy. Obviously, the sage knew nothing of the New Covenant Church, but he certainly knew true faith, and it was, as it was expressed rather in the Old Covenant, of which he was a faithful member. And the second temple, later also known as Herod's Temple, was likely rebuilt, and it was in use at this time, so he would attend the temple. And Solomon, you know, built the first temple. The second one was constructed under Zerubbabel. This is the one the sage attended, was later refurbished by Herod. Sadly, hypocrisy once again found its way into Yahwism and was evident at the temple. Now, the sage witnessed it. He, he has a name for those who frequented the temple and had gained an honorable status for their supposed holy living and even given an honorable burial when they died. He called them wicked. 
wicked. They were hypocrites. That's his point. They were not redeemed. They were religious men who played church, went through the motions for the praise of men, just like those religious leaders of Jesus' day whom he exposed. Now, I said that apostasy is by far the most disturbing because the true church is God's domain, you see. It's a microcosm of his kingdom. He rules there. He is the head, and the church is his body. It is through that body alone that the Lord saves his people for himself, puts righteousness on display in the world, exposes error in society and calls it to account, influences society toward spiritual truth, and makes his gospel appealing. That's where he does all of that in the church. That body is manifest, of course, in local churches all over the world. Now, as such, the church is the only stronghold, then, of God and of his absolute truth on the earth. It's the only outpost for righteousness and godliness in our society. There's no other group you can go to find that. It's really the only hope for the world. Now, Satan knows this and tampers with God's strategy by infiltrating the church with apostates and false teachers and pretenders and, hip- and hypocrites. It's a brilliant move. Keep the form. Change the substance. Who know? Apostate churches are like a placebo in this regard. They are made to look like the real thing and give people who swallow it false hope that it'll cure them when in reality it keeps them in their illnesses. Satan sends wolves in sheep clothing to proclaim a false gospel with all sincerity and love. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 12, Paul claims to deny an opportunity to such men who wanted to be regarded as apostles. They were passing themselves off as legitimate apostles while at the same time trying to expose Paul for being a phony. Of course, it was the other way around. Paul explains it this way. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's, uh, it's no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their works. The Corinthian church was not the only one, not the only church that was infected by these false teachers. Paul warned the church at Ephesus that they would come up through their own ranks. The churches of Galatia are severely impacted by the false teaching, as as were the churches in Asia where Peter and John were pastors. Timothy and Titus had to confront them. Jude writes his little epistle to warn his congregation of them. And Jesus calls entire churches in the book of Revelation, uh, six in all, to repent for apostate behavior. Good news, of course, is that Jesus is building his church. No matter how persecuted or worn or small it gets, it will remain militant for righteousness here on the earth until it becomes triumphant in heaven. Until then, sadly, apostasy is alive and well in the pew. And that should disturb us greatly when we see it taking place detracting from God's holiness, reinterpreting biblical truth, giving Christ's church a bad reputation in the world, and worse still, 
proclaiming a false gospel that promises to save when it really condemns. Beloved, apostasy is a perfect picture of insanity because it prevents people from having a normal perception of truth and reality. Now, the other injustice that the sage lists, second to false faith in the world, it's second in that it it doesn't condemn one to hell, but it rather incentivizes evil. It incentivizes evil. Look at verse 11. The sage pulls no punches here. He calls it like it is for his time. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of mankind among them are fully given to do evil. Apparently, government was dragging its feet when it came to prosecuting criminals. Sage doesn't tell us why, but in light of what he said about government in our last section, it's most likely because government is corrupt. Perhaps it was in the best interest not to punish certain crimes at a particular moment, but actually to stimulate evil in order to bring about their particular end or agenda. First century Roman historian Tacitus wrote of his suspicions of Emperor Nero and that maybe he ordered the great fire that devastated Rome so that he could blame Christians that he hated so much. Maybe. Whatever the reason for government's ineptness in punishing evil, its ineptness actually incentivizes evil activity. Do you see that? As we, as we understand, and, and we understand that, I think, don't we, very well. When law enforcement receives the order from the governor to back down from cri- uh, criminal situations or the state is slow to prosecute crime, people are incentivized to commit more crime. We certainly can imagine how he must have felt and experienced, and what he experienced in a society where there is all this injustice happening because we have experienced that very same context in just the recent past, haven't we? What was true for the sages' time is true today. As the famous refrain from Ecclesiastes goes, nothing is new under the sun. Are we seeing violent criminals released from prison only to repeat offend? Yes. In the past two years, our government has consistently referred to the violent riots back in 2020 and 2021 as peaceful and legitimate expressions of protest and have exonerated the theft and looting by the BLM at that time in the name of reparations. We live in an insane world. Churches honor uh, hypocrites, and justice systems incentivize criminal activity. It's all quite insane. But hear this. The way you live in these circumstances speaks volumes to those around you who know you, who work with you, who have occasion to spend any time with you at all. Because we all live in the same context. In our case, that's America. But this applies to all Christians in their particular context all over the world. We all live in the world. An insane world at that. And you don't have to be a Christian to see this. 
So how Christians live in this insane world is what distinguishes us from the insanity and exposes the Christian life to the world in clear, unmistakable ways. You know where I'm going with this. Christians need to demonstrate the better life to the world, the redeemed life, the God-centered life, the faith. But we know it's difficult. And I know you know it's difficult. And let me tell you one reason, among many, why it is very difficult today, especially. It's because you can drop the ball and respond to your surroundings just like the fallen world does. And most of them will not think twice about that. In fact, they'll see that you're, you're just like everyone else. There are all kinds of sinful, ungodly ways to respond to these insane contexts. Get depressed, lose your temper, lash out in a violent way, withdrawn, become hopeless, pretend what's insane is really sane, and live in some kind of fantasy world, or not come to grips at all with reality and tame your anxiety with drugs. The general fallen populace would consider those responses quite normal. Do you see the temptation for us? We can join them and avoid persecution. Of course, the most glaring problem with this is that we grieve our God and sin against him. That's the most glaring problem, which will eventually make matters worse for us. And secondary problem is that we run the risk of jeopardizing our witness among those fallen in this world who do watch us with a scrutinizing eye. Oh, yes. Beloved, someone is always watching us. Sage knows this temptation, and in those moments when worldly, ungodly, and sinful responses to an unjust and insane world seem to us to make the most sense, it's then that we need to do battle in our minds and minister to ourselves with gospel truth, which is exactly what the sage does in verses 12 and 13. He argues there that in these circumstances... True worshipers trust that God will recompense the wicked and he will reward those who do good and fear him. It's in this depressing, insane world of ours that we have the opportunity to live our faith boldly and clearly. And we can because we know something that fallen people do not. And that is that God will judge justly in the end. He will judge the wicked and he will reward those who fear him. This is the clear message of the Bible. Do you believe that? Do you act on it? I know it may not seem that way most of the time, but that's why we live by faith and not by sight. Sage teaches his son to live by faith, even though sinners sin without consequence and continue to live on, because it will go well for those who fear God. Look at verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will go well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. I love when the sage speaks from a heart of faith in what he knows to be true from Old Testament scripture. He's not speaking from experience right now when he says, I know. While he may see the wicked live a lavish and robust life of sin, seemingly without any consequences, he nevertheless believes in his heart that God's favor is upon the righteous. He's quite emphatic about this. Look at 
Still I know, he says, that it will go well for those who fear God. And notice the last phrase. It's very important. Who fear him openly. I don't know about you. I read that and I thought, well, is there any other way to fear God? I have to say, there are just, there's just something wrong with Christians who are shy to practice their faith openly, as if they're not proud of the redeeming work of Christ in their lives, but they don't want to steer, or they want to steer clear of commotion caused by living the faith before others. Jesus told us to expect persecution for our faith, and the implication is because we'll not be shy to live it before the world. If there is there really is there any other way to live our faith than openly? I don't think so. Do you make apologies for your faith, beloved? I know people in churches who profess Christ but are careful not to offend anyone by their faith, as if they don't want to grieve or, or give rather the impression that the Christian life is the only right way to live. That other belief systems are okay as long as they promote kindness and cooperation. Like the bumper sticker says, coexist. But let me tell you plainly, that kind of Christianity is no Christianity at all. How can you be so absolute about that? Because the sage addresses those who fear God openly. That doesn't mean that we have to be obnoxious about our faith looking at every situation as a showdown to, to pounce on people with the Bible. But to fear God openly means this. It means that you regard God and what he says to you and about you more than you regard people and what they say to you and about you. That's what that means. God's view of you and his commands to you are weightier to you than anyone else's view of you and comments about you. To fear God means that when there is a choice that you have to make between following God's way and following another way, no matter how popular or, or logical or practical or safer that other way seems, God's way wins out every time. That's what it means to fear God. It wins out over what other people in your life, like your family or friends or bosses or authorities, want or expect you to do. So if God tells you to, if God tells you to live a certain way, which is a way that makes the faith unmistakable, then that's the way that you need to live. Because you regard God, God's word. You regard what he says. And any professing Christian who doesn't is guided by the fear of man overly concerned with what others might say about him or how they might judge him. And so he lives for others, not for God. To avoid stepping on toes, he walks on eggshells, hoping that his faith won't offend anyone. And that is no way for Christians to live, no way at all. The sage condones none of it, nor does the Bible. In fact, Jesus condemns it. In Matthew 10, he says, Therefore, everyone who will acknowledge me before others, I also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny him before my Father in heaven. Sobering words. 
Can you say with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation unto everyone who believes. Now, there's another side to our assurance that it will go well for us, and that's the assurance that it will not go well for those who don't fear God. That's the other side of this. Look at verse 13. But it will not go well for the evil person, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow, because he does not fear God. Sage is equally confident from what he believes to be true from the Old Testament scriptures that those who don't fear God will, in God's time, be recompensed for their wicked deeds. There will be a payback time. might not look that way from our vantage point, but it certainly is that way from God's vantage point, and we need to see life from God's vantage point. One of the best examples of this vantage point is uh, from Scripture is Psalm 73. The sage envies the prosperity of the wicked, you may remember. They don't seem to be troubled or plagued as other men, which is their boast. They have more than anyone could want. They scoff at righteousness. They speak from a self-exalted position. And they're always increasing in riches. And what adds to the consternation of the psalmist is that his life, in comparison, is very different. He's careful to confess his sins and to obey God's law, and yet his life does not give him the same bragging rights as the wicked. Now, this is a terrible place for any believer to be in. This moment. He obviously focused on the wrong object. He sees wickedness producing prosperity, and he becomes envious of it. The result is that he becomes defeated. He says in verse 16, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. The insanity of it all just was too painful. Now, if something was not done soon, he would likely have seriously compromised his faith and limped along the narrow way turning point for him comes in verse 17. Life was becoming painfully absurd until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. When the psalmist took his focus off the prosperity of the wicked and put it right back on the glory of God in the sanctuary, he could then think soberly and recalled the terrible fate of the wicked that God outlines in Scripture. It all came flooding back. It all made sense now. Their end will come suddenly and fully. And we would do well to minister to ourselves with the same truth so that we might then go on to minister to our unbelieving listeners with it as well. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times, we we still know and are convinced that it will go badly for him and well for those who are in the faith. We know this. This is what we take our stand in, as we said earlier. We come to the final portion of our text, and that's verse 14 and 15. It introduces one more negative element to make as bleak a background as possible before the sage introduces some good news of God's gift of life. 
True worshipers will, even in those extreme situations of insanity, when government praises criminals and punishes the righteous, will commend God's gift of a joyful life. I love this part, and I've been waiting to get here. This truth is such a welcome and needed word from the Bible to our souls. Please notice that there is good news given in the midst of, of a bad context. Does that sound familiar? That's what we do when we give the gospel. It's always in the bad, in fact, the worst context. According to verse 14, here's the bad context. There is a government that has gone rogue. It's moved from being slow to punish evildoers to praising them. And instead, punishing the just. Sage says in verse 14, there is insanity which is done on the earth, and that is there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and on the other hand, there are evil people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this is too insanity. It is insanity, isn't it? The new and extreme context here is that government treats righteous people as if they were wicked and treats wicked people as if they were righteous. Very clear. And I would argue at this point, it has become an enemy both of God and of his people. That is, government. I heard a message by John MacArthur a while back in which he stated that the greatest threat to our country is the government. Now, that's a bold statement. He meant, of course, that government, should it become so corrupt that it oversteps its God-ordained purpose, has the potential to mistreat God's people, even kill them, and anyone else that it believes opposes its agenda. He made the case with three arguments. I'm going to give them to you. They're very quick. First is this, that government is God-ordained. Right? That's simple enough. God ordained. Paul tells us in Romans 13, every person is to be subject to the governing authorities because there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority, i.e., what God established, has opposed the ordinance of God. Now, that's simple enough. Government is God's established means of restraining evil on the earth. That's its purpose. What comes next then? Well, what comes next makes absolute sense. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Verse 3. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a servant of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a servant of God. Okay, God-ordained government will condemn those who oppose it, who commit evil acts. That's what Paul says. It doesn't bear the sword for nothing. Clear reference to capital punishment. Clearly, then, government is a servant of God for our good and the good of humanity. We might argue that government is an expression of God's common grace to restrain evil on the earth. It's there to ensure that good prevails and evil is punished if not restrained. 
Paul says, if you do what is good, you have the praise of the government. Isn't that interesting? Now, Peter says almost the exact same thing in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. Here's what he says. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. So Peter calls us to submit to government for the Lord's sake. That means because the Lord has established government. Whether it's a monarch, a president, a prime minister, these are ministers of God's justice. They're supposed to stamp out evil and reward good. So you get the idea that when government is supposed to deter evil and praise good, it is doing what God has ordained it to do. And you and I obviously define evil and good the way the Bible does, even though the government doesn't go to that extent. After all, it's not comprised of theologians. It's comprised of politicians and officials. But both Peter and Paul assume that secular government, as devoid of biblical truth as it is, has a sense of morality. It knows how to make laws for the physical well-being of a society. Even pagan nations in the ancient Near East punished thieves and murderers. They knew nothing of the Bible. How do we respond then to government that steps outside its God-ordained purpose? Becomes so corrupt by wicked officials that it no longer punishes evil. Rather, it punishes good, morality, and upright behavior, and praises evil. At this point, government is an enemy of God and of his people, and at that point has given up its God-given authority. John MacArthur, this is John MacArthur's second argument to make the case that government is the greatest threat to the country. A corrupt government can be an enemy of good, and that's a tragic thing when that happens. This is what the sage says. Now criminals can feel safe and free to continue to commit wicked crimes because they'll receive praise from the government. And those who stand for good have every reason to be afraid of being punished for a decent, right, just, moral lifestyle because that kind of lifestyle is a threat to the agenda of a corrupt government. This makes so much sense, doesn't it? And it explains exactly what's taking place in our country. Our government has certainly overstepped its God-ordained purpose. It rewards evil and punishes good. And when, for example, the government labels parents domestic terrorists because they reject the new public school curricula that incorporates the destructive doctrine of critical race theory, I think it has overstepped its bounds. I think it's accurate to say that the state in which our government is right now in America, its agenda protects immoral people, criminals, by releasing some prematurely back into society and giving some others an an extremely light sentence so they're back out quickly. And in both cases, they become repeat offenders. Our government has made those who do good afraid. I don't think we have to spend much time convincing each other. I think we know this. We mentioned civil disobedience only briefly in our last study, and 
and that it's certainly something God expects us to do at the right time, but we never define when the right time was for that. Well, generally speaking, it's when government fails in its God-ordained role to restrain evil, to keep the law and order in the land, and praise evil and punish good. And in that context, Christians will find themselves sooner or later faced with a choice to obey government, and in that choice, it will be a sin to do so. And that is the time, of course, where civil disobedience is necessary. But let me hasten on the third argument that MacArthur gives to make his case that government is the greatest threat to the nation is that it's most, it, it, it is the most powerful authority on earth that Satan uses to attack the church. Think about that. Satan has always been behind human government and intentionally used it to attack the church. Always. Read the entire Old Testament, the New Testament, you'll see that to be true. Jesus was condemned by a governor. Why is this? Because it's the greatest earthly power there is. That's why. It can wield the sword in an abusive way to destroy God's people, and it has throughout history. Old Testament speaks of Satan's influence behind the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. Remember that? Falls from heaven. That wasn't the king of Babylon. That was Satan. The king of Tyre, the same, the same thing. A reference to Satan, Ezekiel 28, 11 to 19. And then in Matthew 4, verses 8 and 9, during the temptations of Christ in the wilderness, Satan promised Jesus to give him what? All the nations in the world if he bowed down and worshipped him, which implies that Satan has all the nations in the world in his power. Right? Now this is a very bleak, very dismal, certainly hopeless situation. Anyone who understands it, whether he or she admits to biblical explanation of satanic control or not. And this hopelessness and lack of confidence is a, in a sound justice system opens the doors for us to introduce the words of eternal life. The sage does this very thing in verse 15. So I commend pleasure, for there is nothing good for a person under the sun except to eat, drink, and be joyful, And this will stand by him in his labor throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. If you've been with us from the very beginning of our study of this book, you will know that pleasure in this context is not the hedonistic lifestyle, which which the sage condemned chapters ago, but really the honest and sound contentment that comes from a life that God gives. It is a life that the sage has explained before as a life that pleases God, a life that is centered on God. It is a life that is born from above the sun. And one who receives this new life from God himself is able to properly enjoy his lot because he knows it's from the hand of God, even in all of this injustice. That's what the phrase, eat, drink, and joyful, be joyful means. The joy, pleasure, deep-seated contentment associated with life that God gives will accompany the believer throughout all his days. 
And no matter how severe life under the sun becomes, no matter how many injustices there are, no matter how many corrupt governments he lives through. So we commend to anyone that will listen to us this life that is born above the sun. Sage commends this life. There's no other life that we can commend that is redeemed, that, 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 is, that is not the redeemed life. Based on a relationship with God himself, it is strong, confident, hopeful, joyful, resilient, eternal. Well, anyone reading the book of Acts would certainly get this impression from God's champions of faith, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, Silas, and of course Paul. Our scripture reading this morning was in Acts 5, which featured Peter and John, who were boldly preaching the gospel, this this life that is born above the sun. It was the first century. The Roman Empire only tolerated Christianity at best. It eventually prosecuted and executed Paul for his preaching, and the same would happen to Peter. But years before that, we see Peter and John receiving persecution from none other than the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, Israel's religious guides, shepherds. And on two occasions, this leadership severely punished these two for preaching salvation to the lost souls in Jerusalem, which we would certainly argue is the greatest act of love there is. To inherit eternal life and joy, enjoy the Lord forever, far surpasses anything under the sun. But rather than receive praise, they were punished. They were flogged and further threatened. And before they were so treated, the leadership asks them in verse 28, Did we not strictly command you not to teach this this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Peter and John reply, We must obey God rather than men. Spoken like true followers of Christ. They had received this new life, the very same that they preached in Jerusalem and, they were, and that they were persecuted for. And I want you to notice that they that their joy was full even after they endured their beatings. Verse 41 says, So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. They are the fulfillment of the sages' teaching in Ecclesiastes uh, 8, 10 to 15. They lived the faith when it was dangerous for them to do so, and demonstrated to the world around them how joyful it is to be counted worthy to suffer for Christ's sake, for which they will be rewarded someday, and those who reject will be rightly and justly recompensed by the Lord himself. All the more reason why people need to embrace this wonderful, redeemed, born-again life that we all know and we have all embraced, it is a life like no other, and that is a commendable life.